Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Requirements for your medical device product development are so important. Uh, it's good for you to think of this as a contract, and I mean this in, in the most positive way possible. It is a commitment that you and your development team are engaged with in designing medical device. And it doesn't matter if it's uh, a mechanical device, an electronic device, a software device, doesn't doesn't matter. Sof- software requirements, mechanical requirements, hardware requirements, those are all critical to setting the pace and the direction of your medical device design and development efforts. Excited about this episode, I've got Chris DuPont. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Galen Data, and we talk about software requirements and uh, and provide some tips and pointers on, on things and, and practices that you should be considering with your development efforts. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And today I have Chris DuPont. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Galen Data joining me. Chris, welcome. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, John. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So we're going to talk a little bit about software, you know, as it relates to medical devices and requirements, gathering and that sort of thing. But give us a little bit of background about you and and who you are and, and Galen Data before we dive too deep today. Sure, sure. And thanks for the opportunity. I'm, I have a you know a degree in electrical engineering, but I've been doing software all my professional life. Cut my teeth at a company where we built a class three neurostimulator to treat a neurological disorder. My main function was a physician programmer. Uh, it was an early stage company and now they're worth over a billion dollars in gross sales. And so it was really exciting to, you know, be part of that growth and, you know, crawl over that company, learning about everything, medical device, regulatory pathway, manufacturing. And then I took all that experience and started the life science division and a NASA contractor. And then we saw an opportunity to uh, connect medical devices to an FDA-compliant cloud in a very efficient way. And John, I know you know this, but our industry, the medical device industry, tends to lag the technology curve five to you know eight, five yeah. to ten years in medical device connectivity. And it's not the therapy; the therapy is very innovative, but because of the regulatory burden and overhead, it's very difficult, you know, to connect medical devices. That's changing. And so we saw people were coming to us and asking us to build FDA-compliant clouds and it took six to nine months and a half a million dollars just for the development. And then you had that same cost almost in operational. So we saw a real opportunity to create a platform. We build it once and then share that cost over, you know, hundreds of medical device companies. And we drive down the risk also because once you build it, each day you use that system, you're driving down the risk. Yeah, it's absolutely the case. And I think part of what I want to talk to you a little bit about today is, you know, to that point, you know, sometimes in the med device industry is a little bit of we're laggards as far as adopting state of the art and best practices and innovative methodologies. And I, and I think one of the areas where there certainly is, um, I'll say, a disconnect or certainly a, a chasm, so to speak, is in the, the area of software. I mean, the quote state of the art from a, a med device regulatory perspective is as we know it today, 
in my opinion, pretty far, far away from from the way software development teams actually operate. Right, right. No, I couldn't agree more. And so some of the things we're going to talk about a little bit today are are those, you know, how do we help bridge that gap? I think if we can figure out ways to do that and, and provide some tips and pointers to to listeners on that topic, I think that'd be great. But I think there are some some core basic tenants that that are, um, I'll say, somewhat universal, regardless of the type of product, whether it's software, hardware, mechanical, that are still going to be important. Um, the, the terminology, the language that we use might be slightly different. So there is a, the lexicon is important, though. I don't want to, to diminish that. But let's talk a little bit about, and you and I have chatted, obviously, a little bit prior to today. I've always said that I think the most important thing that you can do for any medical device, uh, product development effort and, and project is have solid requirements. And I got to believe that software is not an exception to that rule. What do you think? Oh my gosh. You're, I mean, design controls and capturing design and it all starts with requirements. You couldn't be more correct. And software is different. Again, you're absolutely correct. What we do for electrical, mechanical and software is very, very similar. The only difference is software tends to be more malleable. It, you can change. It's software on the corners where electrical device, you have currents, you have watts, you have resistors. Those are all very physically measured devices. Same with you know mechanics. You can me- measure the outer dimensions. Software, it's more difficult. And so it's for any system, it's super important to capture the requirements. And you know, just starting with features and, and user needs or user requirements, that's a, a great way to get started. But absolutely. And software is always unique because it, it tends to have a higher frequency of, frequency of change with a, you know, an embedded device or a mechanical device. But there's still that interconnect. And so you, you have that interconnect between these the subsystems. But then within those systems, software changes at a higher frequency. I, I know that a program I worked on is where you know, the mechanical devices might be on revision one or two. The embedded software might be on revisions three or four, but the physician programmer might be on revision six or seven or eight, because that's really the user facing interface. And that's where we get a lot of the feedback from validation and, and doing uh, all type of collective studies on, on how the user needs to use that device. And we try to capture that in requirements. Yeah. I mean, I've done this the right way. And, and unfortunately I've also done it the wrong way, but, but uh, a project will, the success of a project is, is I believe, 1,000% commensurate on the quality of those requirements. And, uh, you know, even here at Greenlight, I mean, obviously we're building software and an EQMS platform. And, you know, our, we, ha- we have uh, constant interaction with our development team. And, you know, the, the, as we go through that development process, you know, when we don't do a good job of defining the requirements and we get to later stages in development and start to see early prototypes and so on. It's like, Oh wow, we didn't do a very good job defining that. And, and the result shows and it, and you know, that's, that can be a huge challenge. I mean, if you don't do a good uh, set of requirements, then, you know, people will go off and, and be working on, whatever it is that they're you know, developing. And then at the end of the day, it's like, oh my goodness, we, we missed it. So do you have any t- suggestions or, or tips or ideas on, on what companies should be doing to, to sort of vet those requirements and make sure you have those in a way that, 
that allows you to to do what you need to do and and have confidence in that absolutely and and one more thing i'd like to add is that what's unique about the medical device industry is you have a lot of stakeholders you have manufacturing you have clinical you have the regulatory pathway which you have to consider in the requirement definition because as engineers we want to build the coolest most advanced stuff but you have to take the regulatory pathway into account when you're making design decisions because that can add you know months if not years to to the deployment of the software so i also think of con- of of requirements as a contract so you're you're john you're a regulatory expert uh, yeah. and you're also an expert in design controls so if we were working together uh, you would be on my team and we'd say it's a contract between regulatory or quality and engineering that this is the type of device we're going to build. Then I go to clinical. Clinical, this is our contract. So yes, it's requirements, but I view it even more in that. It's the contract of what we need to deliver to the clinical team to make sure we meet, we're meeting the patient needs. Then manufacturing, we could build the coolest device, but if it can't be manufactured, it's not such a great device. And so we go reach out to manufacturing. Manufacturing, these are our requirements. You know, do you have any input? Do you have any, you know, does you know how manufacturability is this particular piece of hardware? Um, and so it's very important to take all the stakeholders in a medical device company, including marketing, um, and you know, of course, your patients. So I see it not just as requirements, but as a contract between all these different subsystems to to build the system. And then if there's an issue, it's not that Chris said or John said. It's Look, we had an agreement on a piece of paper. If we need to change it, we can change it. And then you change, you make that change and going forward. And to answer your question directly, uh, you know, some people are hesitant to capture requirements uh, because it's, it can be hard. And so what I always suggest is let's start with a feature list. Envision how you want the, the user to use it and just write down bullets. And, and that starts to bound the system, such as uh, the programmer ne- needs to be a handheld device. Okay, that becomes a feature or a user requirement. And then each feature, the engineers will turn into detailed technical requirements at a later state. But those features start to bound the system. And it's usually easier to talk about how the user will, will do it and capture those in 30 to 40 bullet points. Um, and it just, it's, it, it makes it an easier process yeah. and a more, you know, talkable part process. Yeah. I, I like the, the notion of, uh, requirements being a contract. And, and I think sometimes, you know, you might hear, we might hear the term contract, like, oh, it's, it's restrictive and, and, and that sort of thing. But I like what you added there, uh, at the tail end a moment ago, uh, it's not set in stone and, and, uh, I'll, uh, I'll encourage people to, it doesn't necessarily have to be on paper, Greenlight Guru. We have an EQMS software platform with design control workflows where you can capture it electronically. But anyway, I'll talk more about that later. But but it is a contract. It is a moment in time. And you know, if we need to change it, let's change it. Let's, let's collaborate and figure out how to refine or revise a requirement so that it makes more sense. And, and I, I want to kind of flesh out that that whole concept of you know you kind of start with understanding features and and what's important to the user and capture these things as user needs and it's okay if those things are are vague in fact i would expect them to be uh quite a very vague actually in the beginning because you know you've got this concept of this idea and the requirements are a time to sort of 
really start to to hone in and and dial in and and be more specific about the the actual criteria, the requirement, the thing that it has to do. And agree on on, on the vagueness, and you know we'll have you know customers. Well, I don't really know how to write a requirement, and we, well, write down you know something that you think it is, and it, it's okay to be vague. And what that does is it starts a thinking process. Three days later, we come back. Oh, okay. Now that it's on on a piece of paper, I can add some more details into it. And so it it certainly helps the ebb and flow. Write what you know and understand, and it will change. And one other comment uh, on requirements, and you've already touched on it, but they do ebb and flow. And so when I ever audit projects, uh, and I see that a a requirement document is on revision zero, I'm suspicious that they they created the requirements document after the fact. It's very common for our projects typically are three to six months. It's very common that we will see a requirements revise at least six times in that three to month uh, cycle, and that and that's very important because you know as you know both companies so two companies will sign off on the requirements document, and maybe at that time they're trying to establish a baseline and get eighty percent of them correct. And then you go and you you add more and more details. And by the time we deliver, that requirements document has probably changed six times. And that's a very good and normal thing. It's when the requirements document don't change, you get a little suspicious. Yeah, absolutely. And, and But I want to talk a little bit about that because I think it is maybe an all too common practice where the requirements are defined after the fact. <laughs> because I, I think... It could be just me and and some of the things that I hear from folks, but I think a lot of people look at like quote design control as being restrictive, and that oh, there's this fear that once I enter into design control, then you know I can't change things, I can't iterate, I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm I'm constrained, and, and in my opinion, my experience is that's that's false, that's a myth, and in fact, that's the whole premise that design control is is gives you an opportunity to capture, you know, that moment in time, what you know based on that 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 product or that project that that you're working on and use that as a means to iterate and evolve. And I don't know if you've seen, you know, good practices or bad practices. I, I guess I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about how Galen uh, Data does this and in a way that, that helps companies keep moving forward, capture what's needed, and, and realize that this is not a restriction uh, or, or a, an impediment to you and to making progress. Yeah, and, and, and again, software is kind of a unique beast in that I think most software people, computer scientists, software engineers, we just like to start hacking out things in a good way. You know, to start writing code and get something working. And I, and I was like that. But over time, uh, through, you know, working at NASA and especially medical device, there is a reason why we have a process. And I also fly light airplanes and I've learned the importance of checklists. You know, you want to put the gear down before you land that airplane and people still land planes with gear up because they're not following the process. So your comment on design controls, it actually helps the process. And in defining the features at the beginning, that contract against uh, across all these different subsystems is, is super important. So yes, I mean, there's value in prototyping, absolutely doing that very quickly and there's value. But at some point, you need to start to lock down design and having and, and it's just not a FDA or medical device. It's just good, sound engineering practice to have a a process that you can repeat, document the front end of your requirements, go into risk analysis, go into design controls, 
And again, that's an iterative process. And you don't always know all the answers, but what you're doing is you're telling a story and you're capturing that story. And then you're telling that story to all your team members that can come back to that Rosetta Stone, so to speak, and see the clues. And in the end, and, and, and again, you've touched on this, but I have learned the hard way. If I spend three to four weeks, five weeks trying to get the requirements as close to done at the complete of the project, and this still can be an iterative, the software, the design falls out. It's when we don't spend the time trying to document the design requirements, the design control is when we have problems later. Yeah, and I think that's where people get hung up is, is that there's this um, perception that I have to have a thorough, complete, fully vetted, fully defined list of requirements before I can move on. And and um, I, I want to talk about that here in a moment. But folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking with Chris DuPont. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Galen Data uh, they're doing some exciting things. I would encourage you to check out uh, their company and their ISO 1345 certified. They do a lot of software development for folks. So so go check out uh, Chris and, and Galen Data. It's G-A-L-E-N-D-A-T-A.com. While I've got this brief uh, pause, I want to remind you, maybe you've been an avid listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast for quite some time. If this is the first time, welcome. There are uh, literally over 100 episodes that you'll have to go check out. Uh, but I want to also let you know that Greenlight Guru recently launched a brand new podcast as well. That's right. We have a new podcast. It's called MedTech True Quality Stories. Wherever you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, you'll be able to find MedTech True Quality Stories as well. Frankly, folks, it's the, the best thing, my, the most fun I get to have in my day-to-day role here at Greenlight Guru is to talk to people like Chris and folks on the MedTech True Quality Stories. Uh, I get to hear stories from folks that are you know med, med device professionals, just like you, who are sharing tips and pointers and you know how they've overcome obstacles and barriers to, to help improve the quality of life. And that's what we're all about here at Greenlight Guru. All right. So, Chris, let's get back to our topic and you know this this notion that that I have to have you know this complete thorough fully defined list of requirements um you know I'll say that's just not agile and I'm not trying to be uh cute uh or you know it's a little bit of a uh uh I guess a, a fad or a hot topic these days everything's got to be agile agile this agile that and I, and I'm not trying to 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 be flip about it but there is something about agile methodology that certainly applies to software and I would uh even go further and say that every medical device should be following agile methodology so I'll leave that a little bit open-ended and, and get your comments on that. Yeah, and no, that's that's a great, great topic. And you know, some some old-timers say you have to use a waterfall process. Some people say only the agile, the scrum, the sprints work. I, I'm of the opinion that you can use any type of software development process in medical device, but you need to follow it. And one word of caution, uh, we use something called an, an iterative process where it's a combination it's more an iterative process um, than anything else. But one word of caution of, of using very quick sprints is that, and we've seen this personally experienced with, with customers and other people, is that when you go into these two-week sprints in software development, it does work and it can work. Uh, but one word of caution is that 
what we have seen is that the sprints get in these very quick two-week cycles updating the code and the and whatever else happens the design the risk analysis requirements because there's just not enough time in engineers to do that some of the documentation starts to be fall behind the two-week sprint so it certainly can work but we have to have a discipline as engineers to go and make sure that we update the requirements and and that's where I think Greenlight comes in, is that traditionally we use Microsoft Word or Excel to manage these requirements. To support these faster sprint cycles, I think uh, having an electronic documentation system to manage requirements, not at the document level only, which is still a good way, it's better than paper, but to manage the requirements at I, what I call at the atomic level, at the individual level. And tools like Greenlight, absolutely facilitate these faster and, and more robust and these iterative cycles. And the other thing is a lot of our teams are geographically dispersed. So emailing a Word document or an Excel is not very efficient. Can it work? Yes. But you will lose control and you'll and different team members will be working with different versions of document. If you have a disciplined requirements tool that can do your design inputs and capture requirements in electronic form, and then have somebody in you know, Texas or Ohio or California or Boston or Minneapolis sign off, then you can, you can see this ebb and flow. And, and tools like Greenlight absolutely help that and make us more efficient and better at the end of the day, I believe. Well, I appreciate you saying so. I mean, f- folks, I mean, first and foremost, have good requirements. As Chris shared earlier, Think of it as a contract, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. This is how you, a requirements argument is how you are going to be able to effectively communicate with your entire development team and other stakeholders. This is you know, a clear set of agreed upon criteria that this device must accomplish. So, so look at that as an advantage. So regardless of what you use, absolutely be stringent on making sure you define and document that. It's very important. And it is one of the things that one of the reasons why we started Greenlight Guru is is to build a tool, a solution that is collaborative in nature. So regardless of your geographic location, that that everyone on a project team can have access to the latest, greatest information in real time and be able to communicate and collaborate in real time and and, and keep the full activity history and all the iterations and all the changes that that take place during the design and development. So uh, if you're interested in learning more about Greenlight Guru, just go over to www.greenlight.guru. You can learn more about the EQMS software platform designed specifically and exclusively for medical device companies by actual medical device professionals. So check that out. I like the iterative topic, Chris, and and I know your expertise is more in the software side of things, but you know, iterative nature is is something. That my personal opinion: every single medical device, regardless of what, whether it's electronics or software or mechanical or or whatever is included in that, an iterative concept or approach is an excellent way. I think to actually help you define uh, your requirements. You talked about building prototypes, and you might do some of that early. Especially, you know, software developers have a tendency to want to try to go in and start hacking away at some code. And I mean that as a as 
as a, a compliment, not as a pejorative. Um, maybe talk a little bit more about that iterative nature and how one can use prototyping and iterations to, to really help you define your requirements. Sure. Um, and, you know, as smart as we think we are, we only have the view of our blinders working within what I call our building. At some point, you have to get your design into the hands of the users. The sooner you can do that in an iterative approach, the better your design. So one of the things we do is we use something called wireframes or GUI mockups. And we ask the, you know, the client, on a, on a, even on a chalkboard, if you just throw your design on a chalkboard or greaseboard, uh, design how you want the screens to look and flow, then we'll translate that in, into you know, a, a design document. But we get that out very early to the customers. We, we even have taken printed screenshots to physicians and clinicians and say, okay, this is how we envision the product. What do you, what do you think about that? And so that is the start of the iterative process. And the bonus in doing that is the FDA, of course, is encouraging early, you know, doing validation as early as possible. That's the start. It's preliminary. I acknowledge that. But that is the start of your validation is that you're taking pieces or parts of your product into the field to show physicians, users, uh, clinicians how you do it. And then you can take credit for that. And what you don't want to do is wait to the end to do validation. And I know it's a little off topic than requirements, but it comes no, back to requirements. And uh, it, it works. And even if we can take, you know, 3D printed parts, uh, early validation of, of maybe a handheld computer or an implantable device or a, you know, a can that represents a neurostimulator, take those out into the field. The doctor might say, well, the corner's too sharp here, or actually it's too small. It would be hard to implant or it might move around. And that might catch you off guard, really, because we, we actually, our goal one time was to build the smallest implantable uh, neurostimulator. And apparently it got too small. And so we didn't, that's something we didn't anticipate. So yes, the iterative process, the sooner you can get it out into the user's hand is, is extremely valuable. Couldn't agree with you more. And, and I want to kind of lean into that topic a little bit as well, because, you know, I think sometimes, at least maybe, maybe this is just me, but I, I've talked to enough folks that I think this is a way a lot of people think, you know, they're from a design control perspective, there's, at least in my brain, there's this image that, that's forever burned in my brain. And it's the, the classic uh, FDA waterfall design control diagram. And I have that same image. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could, I could, I know it. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, three seconds. I can uh, whip it out on a, on a whiteboard and, and talk about it. But um, it's that V diagram, right? <laughs> well, that's the other one. I think that's that's uh, some people look at like the classic FDA waterfall and then there's the V diagram. Some people will look at those like those are saying completely different things. No, 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 they're not. They're saying the same thing. They're just showing the, the information in a slightly different uh, away. I think the V diagram shows kind of what you just described as, you know, you prototype, you start to define what you know, you, you get something into the hands of the end user. You know, it's this constant feedback loop, so to speak, whereas the FDA version of the design control diagram shows more of the relationship of different design control elements, sort of the flow. Neither is necessarily indicative of your product development methodology. It's not saying thou shalt design and develop software or thou shalt design and develop med medical devices in a waterfall fashion or in this fashion or that fashion. It's just a representation of how information flows. Uh, so 
but I, but I like that V model, uh, Chris, because I think it is encouraging that idea of get your product into the hands of the end user, learn something, iterate, you know, rinse and repeat, so to speak. I think that so that whole approach really is in alignment with uh, sort of what's expected from a human factors perspective. And I, I, I don't know what you know or don't know about human factors. Sounds like this is just how you operate. So I, I think you're probably covering that. But, but any comments about the relationship between requirements, development and validation and, and human factors? Oh, it's all interconnected, interrelated. Uh, human factors is critical in, in design of medical device. Uh, again, as engineers, we can build the thing exactly to specification, but if we miss a user need, which is indicative of getting the human factors right, uh, an example, uh, we, uh, we built a software that ran on a handheld computer, and we just assumed it was always going to be used indoors. We got a complaint from one of our physicians. He was at a camp helping children with certain diseases, and he was trying to use our software outside with the sun and he could not see the screen. So we missed a human, a key human factors user requirement in that. And if we, you know, if we would have maybe done better, you know, human factors on uh, exploratory testing, we would have said, Oh, well, we need to be able to support a screen that can be seen in direct sunlight. Absolutely. Shifting gears or, or making a, a, a slight uh, uh, twist here to kind of wrap things up today couple of topics I think come up a lot these days, especially around software, are things like connectivity and IoT and and cybersecurity and that sort of thing. And, and I know those are all things that you need to factor into your requirements, but any thoughts or tips or pointers to leave our audience with on, on anything we've talked about so far or, or IoT or connectivity or, or cybersecurity that that are gotchas that you've seen that, that that people should try to avoid. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of the reasons people say I don't want to connect my medical device to to an FDA cloud or compliant cloud is because of cybersecurity, and they're concerned, and and it's a valid concern. It is absolutely a valid concern, but I think the most precious commodity we have is the human body. Everybody has a check engine light on their car. And a lot of advanced cars actually communicate directly with the manufacturer. There's no real check engine light on medical devices uh, that can communicate. So I think, yes, there's risk in, in transmitting your data, but I think there's greater risk in a missed opportunity of not knowing when that check engine light goes on. We had batteries die in our implanted devices. We never knew about it. We had lead breaks. We had high impedance. If that device would check in once a day, once every other day, to an FDA compliant cloud, we are actually serving our patients' needs better. We can do predictive analytics. And it all comes back to cybersecurity. So it is very important, but with advanced technology and cybersecurity methods, I think the risk of not doing it is far greater than the risk of doing it because we actually can serve our patient needs better uh, as long as we minimize you know, any type of cybersecurity issues. All right. Terrific. Well, folks, I want to thank Chris DuPont. Chris is the co-founder and CEO at Galen Data. 
Uh, I'm just looking at your uh, About Us page. Uh, Galen Data provides secure and compliant medical device connectivity solutions. So certainly an expert in this space. Uh, I would encourage you to go to galendata.com to learn more. As always, if you need help with quality management system, design controls, risk management, and and all those post-market quality events like CAPA complaint, we got you covered at Greenlight Guru and our EQMS platform solution can help you out. Go check out www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And uh, appreciate you listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Share this with your friends and colleagues and, and uh, you know, be sure to go check out MedTech True Quality Stories podcast while you're at it as well. As always, this is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru. And you have been listening to the Medical Device podcast.